Now, as I read that psalm, you probably saw there is a lot going on in there. And so we're going to cover approximately the first 19 verses today. But as we do, I want us to just be aware of something. Some of us know that this time in history, this month, at the end of this month, is 500 years since the beginning of the Reformation. Now, not all of us know the details of that, but in the history of the development of the church, we remember as as Jesus sent forth his apostles and they went forward with that gospel, God began to give great fruit and success to his gospel. And churches began to be planted all over the world, all over Asia Minor. And in all of those churches, unlike these days, they did not have all these distinctive denominations. They understood this, Christ was the head of the church, and he has appointed his apostles as those who speak with authority on behalf of Christ. So whenever there was dissension, whenever there were doctrinal differences, they had a simple solution. Ask an apostle, and he can tell you what is the truth of Christ. As time went by, I'm sure it makes clear sense to all of us, the apostles died. And they were no longer there. And those who were their friends and those who were taught by them on occasion began to differ and hold different ideas and opinions. And as the time went further by, you have more and more opinions. I mean, you you probably know that because you gather people together, friends of yours, into a place. Do they have opinions? You know, uh, what is the best team What is the best college? What is the best style of music? You get a variety of opinions. And some of these opinions, people don't hold to be their opinion. They hold it to be unwavering factual truth. This is the style of music that is the best. What? Not possible because that's not as good as this style of music. But what doesn't change is men's opinions quickly become elevated to the level of fact. Are our opinions facts? They're only factual in that it's factual, that's our opinion. Not beyond that. When we want to come to spiritual truths and facts concerning God, Christ, salvation, His kingdom, even spiritual truths concerning what we are to believe in terms of the general and unchanging truths of the gospel, as well as the specific doctrinal details that God's word gives, we need to go to the same place that the early church went to, the apostles. Now, they're not around, and I'm not talking about some mystic connection with them, but by the grace of God, he was pleased to preserve for us their teaching. So what did the apostles believe regarding the Holy Spirit? What did they believe regarding healing? What did they believe regarding tongues? What did they believe regarding salvation? What did they believe regarding election? What did they believe regarding the will of man? You can ask all those questions. Good questions. But too often, we get our answers by sitting around a circle in chairs. What do you believe? What do you feel? What do you think? And we might say, I feel, I believe, I think, in my experience, that doesn't go anywhere. I mean, that 
is just your belief, your feeling, your experience. What is true? And in the process of time, the, the churches began, the, in the early church, they began to fight over different things. Should we have statues in the church or not? Should we pray to them or not? Should we pray to God in Jesus' name or should we pray to other believers who have died before us? Should we think of the mother of Jesus, the earthly mother? Should we, should we pray to her? And people began to, instead of ask the scripture, because if you ask the scripture, what will the answer be? A no, you pray to God. Well, what if, what if she or some other person can be a mediator? You know, talk to Jesus for me. Well, the scripture says there is one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ, the man. So if someone comes in and says, well, I think we could add his mom onto that list. And I think we could add, you know... Christopher and a host of other good good guys. What's the answer? We don't get to make the list. We don't get to add to it. We don't get to take away from it. We learn from the scripture what it is. What's tragic is they begin to get together. And instead of saying, what does the word of God teach? They began to ask this question. What should we teach? What do we agree on? What do we feel is useful? What we feel is valuable? And into that, over time, ideas came into the church that put aside the centrality of faith, the sufficiency of Christ and his death, and began to say, no, 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 no. You're saved not simply by the righteousness of Christ being counted for you, but you have to add to it your righteousness. And wherever your righteousness falls short, you may be able to get a little from Jesus or a little bit from others as well. And so they begin to develop all these ideas. And then they, they went into the crazier notion that, you know what? We need to raise money to build cathedrals. And they raised a lot of money. And they built beautiful cathedrals. Realistically, they are awe-inspiring when you see them. But the money that was raised to do that, how do you get people to give generously? Well, one way is say, please give generously. A more effective way is this. Right now, your mother or father that passed away, they're suffering because their sins was more than their righteousness. And so they're in pain in purgatory right now. Do you want your mama to keep crying there? Crying out in pain? You know what? For a small fee. We can get her released. The church will release some of the treasury of merit. You just pay this money to us. We will give you a document and boom, she is out. Who wouldn't want to do that? And then others are looking at themselves. They're saying, what about you? Where are you at in the whole weighing of good and bad that you do? Maybe you know that the bad you've done is way over the good. Not a problem. Do you have enough money? You can go ahead and give us money and we will clear that all for you. 
And so people began to pay. So, wait, I can continue my sinful lifestyle. I don't have to change. I don't have to obey. All I got to do is pay. And I get this certificate that I show St. Peter when I get to heaven. And he's got to let me in. Now, to us, that seems like nonsense, right? As, as, as brilliant as we are, it seems, that was not nonsense. To the majority, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, the, the, the Pope, the councils all determined this, and they did it. And 500 years ago, at the end of this month, nailed onto the castle door at Wittenberg, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses which challenged these ideas, basically it was the beginning of what would be called the Reformation. His goal was to take all of this mess of man-made ideas and opinions and, and measure it against the Word of God, that is, the truth of Christ as revealed under His authority by His apostles, and say, if men's word is different than God's word, we're done with men's word. That was the beginning of it. And, and it launched a completely different change because the gospel had been lost in an attempt to create a political and powerful controlling entity. And Martin Luther began to struggle to recover the gospel. So we're going to be considering more about the Reformation as we get to the end of this month. But in light of that, we've been working our way through various psalms on Sundays. This psalm happens to be Martin Luther's favorite psalm, which is hard for me when someone says, what's your favorite verse, or what's your favorite song, or what's your favorite food? Like, yeah, I can give you a list of songs I like and a list of verses that are particularly poignant at this point in my life, um, but to single one out is difficult. But listen, I want just you to hear how Luther, when he was writing to um, Abbot Frederick of Nuremberg, when he had translated this psalm, how he speaks of it, before we just consider um, very clearly some of the points he gives in here. This is what he says as he, as he sends the translation of this to uh, uh, Abbot Frederick. This is my psalm, my chosen psalm. I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation and my life. But this psalm is nearest to my heart, and I have a peculiar right to call it mine because it has saved me from many a pressing danger, from which nor emperor, nor kings, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and the powers of this, this earth. But it may be objected that this psalm is common to all. Not mine, it belongs to everyone. No one has a right to call it his own. Yes, but Christ is also common to all, and yet Christ is mine. I am not jealous of my property. I would divide it with the whole world, and would to God that all men would claim this psalm as especially theirs. And would it be the most touching quarrel and the most agreeable to God, a quarrel of union and perfect charity. Everybody fighting over, no, I love that passage. No, I love that section of God. So let us get into and see something of this wonderful and powerful chapter. First thing I want us to point out is this chapter emphasizes at the outset giving thanks to the Lord. 
even you'll notice if you're looking closely, it this chapter itself is bookended. By bookended, it's a simple term saying the first verse and the last verse are identical. So when I read the first verse to you now, you won't know if I'm reading the first verse or the last verse. You won't know. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That simple notion where it tells us to give thanks to the Lord. Really, this carries on the, the theme from, the, from chapter 117. Chapter 117 is considered to be kind of a part and written together with this one, almost like a, an introductory refrain before you sing the rest of it. And what does that one exclaim over and over again? Praise him, all nations. Extol him, for great is his love. Praise ye the Lord. So it's calling on him to praise him. And it says, oh, give thanks to God. Now this, what's interesting also, or I find interesting, hopefully you will as well, if you were to, and it might be difficult, so you may have to trust me unless you're taking notes. If you were to look through, you would find this exact verse. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Not only is the first and last verse of this chapter, but it is the first part of Psalm 106, Psalm 107. 1 Corinthians 16, 24, Psalm 136, 1, Jeremiah 33, 11. You think, what happened that the same verse gets said here and here and here and there and there and there? Why would you need to say it again and again and again? People often don't like to have things repeated. Let me say that again. People don't often like to have things repeated. The, 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 the struggle is this. Why do the scriptures repeat these things? Here and there and here and there. Because ask yourself this question. Do circumstances come into your life? Occasion struggle, struggles? Dark days? You do not give thanks to the Lord. You think, no, 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 today is not a day to give thanks. Today is a day to cry out for deliverance. Today is a day to cry out for mercy. Today is not a day to give thanks. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, no. It may also be a day to cry for mercy. It may also be a day to plead for deliverance. It may be, uh, also be a day to say, God, help me, I need you. But even if it is that day, it is also yet a day to give thanks to God. Because listen, we have someone, not just someone, we have the God to hear us. As we considered last week, he hears our prayers. 
he inclines himself to hear them. At the very least, I thank you, God, that as I cry out to you in this desperate situation, you know my need, you know my circumstance. I'm thankful that I'm appealing to the one who has the power to deliver me and has the power to give me strength to persevere, even if it gets harder and darker. I thank you, God, that I know you. Is there not always something to thank God about? Uh, you know, again, sometimes I like to remember in the simple things that, that we sometimes complain about. By we, I might be referencing me. Hopefully you too, and not just me. But sometimes you think this. Uh, you know, it's my experience that usually every day after a meal is done, strangely enough, dishes need to be done. Right? And, and the meal part, I'm good with that. The following, not so enjoyable. And so I might on occasion look at, you know, all of those dishes and say, but there, it seemed there were only, in the end, an entree and two sides. Um, how in the world did we get so many dishes involved in this meal and you get ready to wash it and you're oh, washing these dishes you know it's taking as long to wash it as it did to eat it and these kind of thoughts could stir up if they haven't in the past now that i've said it maybe it will <laughs> but uh, but even in that moment of potential grumbling what can i be doing uh, i have reason to give thanks because what did i just finish doing I just finished eating a meal, probably at my home, a delicious meal, right? Further than that, not only a meal, all these dishes to wash, but you know what it means? Somehow in the provision of God, we got plenty of pots and pans and plates. Not everybody necessarily has those things. And so here I potentially am grumbling in these things, but the, the need to do these dishes and the very existence of these dishes, I've got things to thank for. I've got running water in my home to wash it with. Not everyone has that. I mean, the, the list of thanks that I can give actually exceeds the complaints that ought to be associated. But for some reason, without any intention or effort at all, the grumbling comes. The, the complaining, it's, it is natural. The giving thanks sometimes has to be more intentional, more deliberate, which is why the psalmist is stating here and reminding us and why we need to say it to us, oh, give thanks to the Lord. I'm saying it to me and I'm saying it to you, give thanks. Thanks to the Lord. As we've said, in all things with thanksgiving, you let your request be made known to the Lord. But in all things with thanksgiving, we rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. The repetition is necessary because you know what? No one needs to remind me to complain. No one needs to remind me to grumble or to be dissatisfied. But does someone need to remind me to count my blessings? Yes. And I need that reminder and you need that reminder. And God here in this passage again gives us that reminder. Second thing in this particular context, it says, Give thanks to the Lord for He 
is good. Okay, that's very important. The, the, the overriding passion and the overriding priority of these thanks is the goodness of God. The, his excellencies, His beauty, His perfection. It's unchanging. And we've got to get this clear in our mind. If Paul is one who's facing a difficult circumstance where he's got this ongoing thorn in the flesh, you know what has not changed? He is in some degree of bodily misery. But you know what doesn't change? God is good. So he can in some sense say this, I am miserable, but God is good. And so in the goodness of God, and knowing that even whatever degree of misery I may have right now, God is in control of that. God is able to take it away. God is able to teach me and discipline me and help me to learn something through this. And so even in my misery, I can say that God is good. And we know this from Romans 8, 28, which everyone hopefully has memorized. What? God works all things together for good to those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. So even I'm miserable, but God is good and his design and purposes are good. I don't know what's, what's, what it's all going to work out, but in every situation. See, the challenge is this, and you'll probably hear this. Note this, common language among Christians these days. Something good happens. Ask people to pray for us when we're taking a test. Ask people to pray for us when we're facing a situation at work. And we do well on the test, and everything comes out how we had hoped. Positively, we get what we want. People might say, so how'd you do on the test? And here's the wonderfully spiritual response. God is good. I got an A. God is good. Problem at work resolved. Okay, you got a D. Has God ceased to be good? The problem at work is not resolved. It's exacerbated, which means got worse. Is God still good? Yes, he is. And so it's very important that we understand the goodness of God doesn't depend on how or whether or not he presently seems like he's being good to us or doing good to us. He is good. That is unchangeable, unbreakable, unshakable. He is absolutely good. This goodness of God, listen to the way I want to share uh, uh, just a few thoughts with you. In Ezra chapter 3 verse 1. All right, They have returned to Jerusalem. They are in the process of rebuilding the temple. And they have just finished laying the foundation of the temple. In Ezra 3 verse 11. That's what I meant to say if I didn't. It says this. And they sang responsively. All right, they took a break and they sang responsively. Which means one person sings it. And then another person sings the same thing. So it could be an unknown song, but here's, the, here's what you got. Whatever I sing, you just sing it back to me. You know, it's, we don't have a lot of experience of that, but it's kind of like you, you, you get the idea of the people jogging in the military and the, and the guy out front, he says something. And then the guys behind him will, will 
chime it back. And, the, and there's this back and forth repetition. One of them is leading. What were they leading in this moment of joy, this moment of exaltation? Look at what it says. They sang responsively, praising God and giving thanks for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. That should remind you a lot of the first verse of this psalm, doesn't it? He is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And then it says, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I mean, all of this joy and all of this thanks and all of this overflowing emotion, what had actually happened? The foundation had been laid. So if you stood back and looked at it, is it something to see? You know, if it starts to rain and you go stand on the foundation, are you doing good? No, your rain has fallen on your head. And so it's not all that impressive. And yet they were overwhelmed with thanks of the goodness of God because that foundation was laid. Let me just share you a verse from Corinthians and tell me what you think of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 says this. Paul says, according to the grace of God given me, like a master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he build upon it, for no one can lay another foundation than the one that is laid, Jesus Christ. All right? They jumped up and down because some stones had been laid down as a foundation to a building that would eventually be built and then eventually what? Destroyed. Brought down. Whereas what Jesus has laid is the foundation where we are living stones being built into a temple. And I ask you, will it ever be broken down? Will the gates of hell prevail against it? Can anyone shake and shatter it? So if they had reason to rejoice in a couple of well-placed stones before a building was being made, if they had reason to give thanks in the goodness of God because of the foundation that they saw and they laid, who has greater cause to give thanks, them or us? We have an immovable foundation of an absolutely infinite and unbreakable king and kingdom. Brothers and sisters, how dare they outrejoice us? We should be outrejoicing them because we have a greater foundation. It says this in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. Now, this is a reference to the incarnation. And it says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Ooh. What does it say about the appearance of it? The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. So who saved us? Well, He saved us. Well, how did He save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God came down when we were yet sinners. He died on the cross, reconciled us to himself. 
sent his spirit to us in the hearing of the gospel, bringing us salvation. He saved us. That's something glorious because are all saved? No. And so what cause do we have to give thanks more than others? So we see the giving thanks to the Lord. Secondly, we see the goodness of the Lord. Thirdly, we see the graciousness of the Lord still there and finishing off verse 1. says this, for the steadfast love, his steadfast love endures forever. Now just say this. This word steadfast love, if you look at it in different translations, it's going to mess you up. Because one will say, for his mercy endures forever. One will say, for his loving kindness endures forever. His steadfast love. What is it? This is the, this is the beauty of the word that messes with the English. The word's scope and richness, it's too good and too great and too big for one word. It speaks of that which is totally undeserved. It speaks of that to which, which God has given and committed to us. His steadfast love endures forever. Now, I like that because the Old Testament temple, would that endure forever? No. What about um, all of the, the tribes and all of the distinctive land that they had been given? Is that still going on? Nope. So a lo very little in this world endures forever. Some might say very little remains. But what does the scripture say? His steadfast love endures forever. Now this is such an important theme that now he gets carried away. Because look at verse 2. He said it once in verse 1. Now he takes up verse 2. Let all the house of Israel say... For his steadfast love endures forever. Let all the house of Aaron say, For his steadfast love endures forever. Let all that fear the Lord say, Yeah, see, by now you ought to be shouting it. I guess we are not preaching responsibly. His steadfast love endures forever. Again, if you were to go and read Psalm 136, that is a responsive psalm where there is a statement made and after every single statement in that chapter, you know what the response is? For his steadfast love endures forever or for his mercy endures forever. It endures forever. The scripture says his mercies or his steadfast love is new every morning. Every single day I'm met with the reality that God is a gracious God. We make light of those who are um, so exceedingly demonstrative in their remarkable spirituality that they say things like this. You ask them the common refrain, how you doing? Right? Of which most people who ask that are just trying to say hi. They're not looking for much more than that. But you, but you say, how you doing? And, and, and they, they respond with this deep, profound spirituality, better than I deserve. And you think, wow, this, wow. No. Well, I mean, you, you get that. But is there truth to it? Yeah. I mean, it, maybe it, it, we don't have to necessarily respond that way, but that should be at some point in our hearts and minds. We are, by the grace of God, doing better than we deserve. For sure. And as we, are, uh, as we experience that every single day, we are so thankful 
for God's mercies and his care and protection. Look with me, if you would. I'm going to read for you briefly out of uh, Lamentations chapter 3. It says, the steadfast love, verse 22, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and following. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So I often try to give you quizzes to make sure that you're um, getting it. But I'm one of those teachers that makes the quiz kind of obvious. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So when does it end? It never. So in a hundred years? A thousand years? A million years? Is there any point at which it ceases? No. Now, is there, a, is there an experiential day where sometimes we think, oh, I think it stopped today for me. Yes, we may feel that way, but you know what we get to tell ourselves? You wrong. It hasn't ceased. It can't cease. It will never cease because it God's. It never ceases. It's not done. His mercies, in case you didn't get that, his mercies never come to an end. So again, when does it end? All right, You get the sense, right? They are new every morning. I, I like the fact that they, it says they're new every morning. It gets the sense that there is a vitality and a freshness to us. It's not that it's just something that, that is um, set in stone and unmoving and Every time you look, it's going to be there because no weather can shake it. No, no, no. It's, it, it's new every morning. It's t there's a vitality to it. There's an experience of it. There's a life to it. God's mercies meet us daily. <laughs> we come to Him. Every day that we come to Him, it, it's because of His mercy. Every open door. All of eternity. We will spend eternity in His presence in heaven. And every day it will declare to us unceasingly. We stand here by grace alone. If it were not for God. We would not be here. Not a one is going to say he deserved it. Not a one is going to be boasting. Which is why some of the dangers as we come into a... a, a the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, people might want to run around and jump around shouting, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli. And, I could, and I've already gone into names that some of you are saying, is he making that up? No, these are real names. But uh, it, it's, it's not so much. These men, they are not going to be there because they were better than us. Not a one is going to be there boasting in themselves or boasting in anything they did on behalf of the kingdom here. Together with us, we will forever know in a deeper knowing than we do now. The steadfast love, mercy, the graciousness of God never ceases. So let me not doubt that. No, let me not deny it. Now, let's begin to zip through. He gives a, a list of expressions and experiences of some of the ways that the graciousness of God pours over to us. And I tell you, the way that this chapter is laid out, you could almost just hit underlines. Because 
so you don't miss the point. He uh, emphasizes things by way of repetition. Sometimes interpreting passages take a lot of work, take, take a lot of language study. This is one of those chapters that to understand the main themes of it, you could almost say this is a psalm for dummies because you can't miss the main points because he kicks you with them. Okay, because look what he says now as we move in to the next one. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I will look in triumph on those who hate me. What do you get out of that? The Lord is on my side. Now, some of the older translations, sadly, chose not to repeat that refrain, and so you miss it. The Lord is on my side. The Lord is on my side to help me. And so we get to shout what? Though the whole world stand against me, though even those that are seemingly supposed to love me, I'm not feeling it. The Lord is on my side. So you know what? Bring it. No, you don't have to say that because, because we don't necessarily, we're not soliciting attacks, but the confidence is this. When it comes, we're good because the Lord is on our side. Now, if you look more literally beyond this, the ESV, it says the Lord is on my side as my helpers. It's really uh, along with my helpers, plural. So even though others may join with me, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily all alone. It's not us that are going to make it happen. The victory that's going to be brought about is because the Lord's on the side, not just because of the other helpers who are also there with me. So it's good to know that. Um, even, uh, look what it says. Let's move on to the next one. Verse 8 and 9 says this, I'll read it, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. What do you think the main theme is there? It is better to trust in the Lord. You begin to put these pieces together. The Lord is on my side. It is better to trust in the Lord. And actually, it's only stated as better because of the comparison with men. The, the, that word used in every other context is this. It is good. Not, I mean, because there are people who like to say, well, there's good, better, and best. So it's better. To, no, no, no. It's best. This is the essence of of goodness it is good to take refuge in the lord which reminds us to some extent does it not of the well-known by some hymn written by martin luther what was that hymn a mighty fortress is our god a bulwark never failing here's the idea it is better to take refuge in my god Whenever things are going on, I don't, I don't necessarily look at others and the enemy and, and, and get distraught by their size and strength. I don't look at myself and think there's a spark in me that can get this done. No, 
I run to God. He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is my care, my protection, my solace. In the spirit of the Reformation, regarding this, John Calvin says this. All make this acknowledgement. Yet there is scarcely one among a hundred who is fully persuaded that God alone can afford him sufficient help. That man has attained a high rank among the, among the faithful who, resting satisfied in God, never ceases to entertain a lively hope even when he finds no help here on earth. That's the riches. I look around, from where will my help come? My hope is in the Lord. My salvation is from my God. To him I will flee. How will I get victory over this sin that seems to have me trapped that I can't get away from it? There is only help and deliverance and victory in God. How will I keep from being crushed from the things that people are saying to do to me? There is help and victory in God. How will I uh, uh, serve him even though I feel so limited in my own gifts and capacities? That's all right. There is strength and there is help in God. Look to him and carry on in grace. Looking even further, if you will, with me, down to verse 10 and following, it says this. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, and they went out uh, like fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Do you hear another refrain there? The refrain is what? In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Which is, a, which is a strong statement of absolute confidence of victory. Now, he's able to say it looking back, but we're able to say it even looking forward. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. And so, let the nations gather together. That's all you got. Let them surround me on every side so there's no seeming escape. Not a problem. I was planning on going over you anyway. Right? I mean, the, 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 the sense is, it doesn't matter. And it's not simply I cut them off. But it is in the name of the Lord I cut them off. When I go about the things I go about, my daily life, the struggles, the battles, the engagement, I do it not in my name. I do it not in my glory. I do it not by my strength. I do it in the name of the Lord. I do what I do representing Him. I lean upon Him for strength. I look to Him for grace. He is my God. And so He speaks of cutting them off. Verse 15 and 16 goes on to say this. Glad songs are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Verse 16. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. What is the refrain there? The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Now this is an interesting phrase and one that I think often confuses us. Now historically, let's be realistic, in ancient Israel, the concept is right hand was generally a reference to your capacity and to your power. Someone's right hand, that was gen generally their better hand. 
Obviously, if you're not right-handed, that's not the case for you. But that figure of speech stood. But the scripture, I think, takes that idea of right hand and endows it with something more than just power, but directs us to a person. And let me show you why I say that. Mark chapter 16, and I'll just read these verses quick. Mark 16, verse 19 says this. So then, the Lord Jesus, after he spoke with them, was taken up to heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Acts 7, 56, he said, And behold, I see the heavens. This is Stephen as he's being martyred. I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1, 20, speaking of the power and the salvation that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. In Hebrews 1, 3, and in Hebrews 10, 11, it again speaks of Christ when he had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for salvation. He sat down at the right hand of God. So when we want to, want to look at this and we want to think of the power of God, not just his right hand impersonally and all of the power that he does, but the greatest display of his power was through that one that was at his right hand, that is at his right hand. That victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. So... Through his right hand, he does valiantly. Jesus Christ conquered all the enemies. Victory over the grave. Victory over the death. He put to shame all of the princes and all of the rulers in heavenly places. And distinguished himself through Christ. Now, other psalms say this. Through our God, we shall do valiantly. Our boldness, our confidence, our strength. Our victory is because Christ is in us. There is so much more in this psalm, and I look forward to taking it up with you next week. But let me just give a quick reminder of the things that we've considered thus far before we pray. This psalm gives us and directs us to the importance of giving thanks to God at all times, in all circumstances. It directs us to the goodness of God. At all times and regardless of circumstances. It takes us and declares to us the graciousness of God that is unceasing, that is unending, that is new every morning, that has been afforded to us with eternal surety in Christ. And then evidences of his graciousness come in these refrains that we could put together as their own song. The Lord is on my side. It is good, right, better to take refuge in the Lord. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And you and I are in his right hand. And is anyone able to snatch us out of that hand? No, indeed. And with that hand being our power and holding us in the grip, can, the, can man destroy us? Can anyone bring us to an end? Can the devil destroy us? No. And that's why, what it, again, what did Luther say? One little, little word will fail him. He has no power over us because God and his son at his right hand is for us. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It is so much and so rich that we could just continue to dig into it and study it and enjoy it 
for hours upon hours, but we want to take the things that we've considered, the things that you've so clearly revealed in this passage, and just meditate on them. Just let these things go over and over in our heart and minds, because God, there is none that can compare with you. And we don't come here just to be a part of a club, and we don't come to go through some uh, sense of duty and responsibilities. We come together in the name of Jesus. We come with a surety and a confidence that there is a God and only one God, and that God is you. There is salvation, and there is only salvation in the name of Christ. We come not to follow any of the traditions and ideas that are merely the invention of men's minds. We come to worship the true and living God, made known to us through His living Word. Lord, may you powerfully live in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.